0: This is Productive Ministry, Episode 7, Racism, with special guests Kingston and Crystal Arthur. Kingston and Crystal began their ministry in Ferguson, Missouri, just one year after the shooting of Michael Brown. Now, there are things in this episode that you may not agree with on both sides of the race issue. We hope that you share this episode with your friends, with leaders in your church, and then follow up with a conversation. Today, we talk about racism how to minister in changing neighborhoods, the need for multi-ethnic churches, white privilege, economics, and so much more. And now, Kingston and Crystal Arthur. Our guest today is Pastor Kingston and his wife, Crystal, um, and they work at Ferguson Christian Church. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today.
1: Glad to be here.
2: Yeah, we're excited.
0: How long have you been working in Ferguson?
2: we started working here at the church uh, i started pastoring here september of 2015
0: that means that you're interviewing at the time when the first anniversary and and they're and they're scoping you out and and you're having to apply and we all know we're all familiar with what's happened in ferguson and what happened on august 9 2014 with the the shooting of michael brown and the the subsequent Protest. You and your wife decide together that this is the community you want to work in. How did you come to that decision?
2: Well, I graduated from St. Louis Christian College May of 2015, and I saw a lot of my friends kind of rush into a ministry. I didn't want to do that. I actually went and got a job as a physician recruiter. I got a job that I thought I would work for several years, and I was just going to pray that God placed me in a ministry on His timing. Didn't think it would be so quick. You know, I wasn't looking for anything. Uh, I just became aware. You know, I prayed that if, if I heard of an opening, if somebody made me aware of an opening, then I pray about it. If it looked like a fit, we would apply. We heard about Ferguson. We acknowledged our unique situation being biracial, being in an interracial marriage. We prayed about it and decided that we'd pursue it, and we did. That's where we ended up.
0: Okay, Crystal. So Kingston comes to you and he says, Hey, I want to work in this community. And what is going through your mind before you guys immediately start praying about it?
1: I grew up here. Kingston um, is from Sykeston. But I grew up in St. Louis. Okay. So I was familiar with Ferguson. I knew it wasn't quite what it appeared to be on television that summer. I wasn't opposed. I liked the idea of staying near my family. Um, that was a right. And I knew the community wasn't just that event. I was on board.
2: It might be worth mentioning also that the pastor here before me, he was a professor. Crystal and I both had him in class at St. Louis Christian College. Crystal actually went to Africa with him. One of the elders was one of our professors. We had had a little bit of a connection with the church anyways. So it it, it felt good kind of from the beginning.
0: Great. What is the actual demographic makeup of the community that you work in there in Ferguson?
2: Roughly, it's uh, close to about two-thirds African-American and then a third white.
0: Right. Does your church reflect that very well?
2: No, it does not.
0: Is that a struggle?
2: Yeah, it it is. I think that the events on August of uh, 2014, I think that kind of made the the congregation Uh here aware that there was kind of a a disconnect between the church and the community. This church does have a heart to reach out to the community and to reflect the demographics of the community. And we've openly talked about in our leadership meetings. I've shared it from the pulpit. The fact that we don't reflect our demographic is strong evidence that we are not doing and being all that we need to do and be. Right. And and we're, we're analyzing that. We're taking steps, I think, in the right direction. Anytime there's change, there's always a little bit of pushback. People here in leadership and the congregation uh, know that, that change does need to take place. They're excited about it. And, and I will say that we have began to reflect more of the demographic. Uh, we have gotten right. in a little bit more of an African-American community within our church, not nearly two-thirds, but there have been some steps made in the right direction.
0: Yeah. One of the things that really tends to be a great equalizer in the church is economy. How much does economics play a role in your ability to want to reach out to a community?
2: Regarding Ferguson uh, in that, it, actually, and it's not just Ferguson, it's all of North County, really, North County, St. Louis, uh, you you could be driving down the road and, and be driving by almost mansion, you know, just huge, really nice houses. And then You know, within minutes on the same road, it's completely flipped and, and, you know, you're in a low-income neighborhood. And and Ferguson's kind of like that. Uh, The street that our church is on got a lot of really nice houses on it, but then just right down the road, it flips. And that's something that kind of has added to the unique flavor, I guess you could say, of Ferguson. That's something that we've talked about before, too, is that a lot of times it's not necessarily strictly a race issue as it is a lot of times an economic issue. And and the fact of the matter is that a a lot of low-income families are minorities. Ferguson used to be a uh, predominantly white community, upper middle class. Some Section 8 housing uh, moved in, and, you know, you have low-income families coming in, and that means a lot of minorities, uh, a lot of African-American families, quickly became a predominantly African-American community. Churches like ours just didn't keep up because it, it happened pretty fast.
0: We experienced a lot of that in Dallas because of Hurricane Katrina, and it caused lots of communities to change rather quickly. The church that I was at at the time was really struggling to to keep up and having to make a lot of decisions about how are we going to approach this? How do we help people who need help, especially when they're just like coming into the community so quickly and of course for for us it was as a result of a natural disaster if your church is going to effectively minister if you're coming up with a docket of this is how we get to where we need to be what are some of the things that are on that list
2: the the first one
0: that's a that's a tough question i know well the yeah. first
2: one that comes to mind and honestly it might it might be i guess it's not the only one but uh, empathy empathy sympathy that has to be what happened with mike brown and uh and, and not just Mike Brown, but even the more recent su- shootings of, of last, you know, last summer with Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And <sighs> what cannot be denied now is the fact that there is um, there is there is a racial issue in our nation. There is a, a disconnect between between the white community and the black community that is almost undeniable. You run into somebody every once in a while who deny it. Most of the time that person will be white, but uh, but you'll run into them. Predominantly, especially in honest, uh, honest, God-fearing, uh, gospel-believing churches, people are realizing that there's that there's an issue uh, that needs to be addressed that hasn't been addressed. It's it's hard as a white guy ministering in a, in a black community where there's a little bit of tension and a little bit of frustration there with the white community. It's got its difficulties, and I don't go around broadcasting that I have a black wife. You know, I don't wear a T-shirt that says my wife is black. And, you know, it's not something that comes up in conversation because I didn't marry her because she was black. We got married before all this happened. But whenever I did go out and I did some evangelism um, and some community outreach during this uh, this most recent anniversary, while I was ministering, while I was talking to people, one of the places that we went, in fact, the place that we went to the most that week was, uh, was Canfield, where Mike Brown was killed. We just stood there. We stood there and prayed sometimes. Sometimes we didn't have really enough people to come and pray. So mm-hmm. we just we just ministered, we just talked to people cuz there were there were people around. People there protesting, people there mourning. Right. And uh, there was all kinds of stuff, animals and all kinds of stuff there right where Michael Michael Brown was killed. I would talk with people with the intent of sharing with them the gospel. Um and uh, you know, a lot of them if not all of them were were Black Lives Matter activists, right? And and I would have conversations with them, and I would ask them, you know, what 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 do you think would solve this problem? What, what what needs to happen? And almost all of them, in one way or another, would say there needs to be a change of power. There needs to be a change of power, so in one way or another. One one guy said that he thinks it'll have to be a violent takeover, and that's not what he wanted, but he thinks that's what it'll take, and he was serious because he was. He had a glock on his hip as I was talking to him. Right. But uh but but we're talking and he said uh he he said that and, and, and in all the conversations that I had, I asked him if I could if I could share them the gospel. I told him who I was. But before I told him that, I, I and, and they almost all of them were receptive to hearing me. And I think what that was was that I, I expressed sympathy. I almost said something and I know that this that a lot of people will disagree with what I'm about to say. I, I've met people who have, but I don't think that it's possible to minister to as a white guy ministering to the black community, I don't know if it's possible unless you say something like what we said, and that was, you know, I, I'm a white guy. I understand that there's a, that there's a disconnect here, that there's a problem. And I told them that that I understood that uh, that our nation was built on on the blacks of African Americans.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It wasn't the, the system that we have was not set up with them in mind. That, that has led them to a great disadvantage now. I, I, I began that way. I began by telling them that I have, I am interested in this and I would, I would bring up my sons, um, which naturally would bring up my wife. At the time, my wife was pregnant with our second child. Uh, he ended up being a very light skinned child, but our first child is uh, is darker skinned. And I told him that, you know, it, I have some invested interest in this. I want to see change happen, you know, because I don't want my son to get pulled over and things get, Wonky, you know, and I'm I'm a pretty I was a pretty hot headed kid, so my son might be a hot headed kid, you know. I don't yeah. I don't want him to get in trouble because of that. So I you know I told him that I have I have interest in this. I want to see change. But that then led into a natural segue into, I, I understand where you're coming from. I understand the pain. I don't understand it as well as you do. In fact, one lady said, I can tell by looking in your eyes that you understand. And I said, you can't tell that because I, I don't know what it's like to be black. And I never will know what it's like to be black. Right. But uh, but but I do see the disconnect. So you don't see empathy in my eyes, but you see sympathy. Um, And you see me being, as far as I can possibly be, you see me being empathetic. And then that led into a natural segue into sharing with them the gospel and telling them that, that that's how I think um, change needs to happen. And I would tell them that, that even if the people in high places, even if they don't receive the gospel and even if they don't repent, because that's, that's what will bring about huge changes if our leadership in our country uh, accepts Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that would be awesome. Right. Um, but even if that doesn't yeah, happen, I would tell them, Mr. and Mrs. You know, Black Lives Matter activists, if just you would receive Jesus Christ and you would be able to find peace here and now. And you would be able to to find comfort in knowing that a God who knows better than we do will delve out justice as He sees fit. And uh, that's what they're looking for: is peace and justice. Sympathy and sympathy. That would be at the top of my list of what what needs to change because a lot of white folk just don't. They're not willing to be sympathetic. It's hard for them to admit that there is a problem because that brings about, uh, in many cases, a level of guilt. You know, I'm doing I'm doing something wrong or I've done something wrong, and it, it doesn't. Right. doesn't necessarily have to. Um it's just an an acknowledgment of what I would say are, are the facts.
0: And I hear I'll, I hear that a lot in the church where people will say say things like, well slavery you know happened 2 300 years ago. I didn't I didn't have anything to do with that. I wasn't in Ferguson when Michael Brown was shot. I wasn't here in these places. I I had no direct. Now you're telling me that there's there's something wrong with with white people or or somehow I'm part of the problem or that I'm a racist or that I'm uh, or that I'm somehow prejudiced that language becomes very divisive in the way that it's received when you're working at your church and you're trying to build this bridge are you trying to express the same sympathy or the empathy to to your white congregation as to your black community That's
2: a good question. As a white guy married to a black woman with with biracial children I acknowledge that that gives me a certain stage, I guess you could say, with my white brothers and sisters. And, I, and I'm a little bit more direct, not not harsh. I hope I'm not harsh. And I can be empathetic there because growing up, I, I wasn't racist by any means, but I had a lot of black friends growing up. And uh, and I just convinced myself, you know, that racism wasn't a problem anymore because I had a lot of black friends and they liked me and we liked each other. So racism's a bygone. You know, it's not an issue anymore. I've, I, you know, I've repented from that. So I, I can't empathize to that level but but I'm a little bit more direct in pointing out the issues and pointing out the fact that that you know that white privilege is a is a thing and that it's something that we need to be aware of you know there's not really much that we can we can do about it on a on a day-to-day basis but as having a mentality about it a, a, an understanding about it then we can combat it over a long period of time
0: Right let me ask you a very direct question how are poor white people privileged
2: I don't think that they're as privileged as of, as of course a wealthier white family. Typically, if you see a poor white man and a poor black man next to each other, I think a little bit more sympathy is, is extended to the white guy. You might give him a benefit of of the doubt regarding his situation. And again, this is anecdotal, you know, and that's the problem with white privilege is that everything right. that you have is anecdotal. And that's why people who don't believe in white privilege say, well, I wouldn't think that or that was that copped on that day or, you know, whatever. I think it's safe to say that it is most certainly a thing. And I think that if a, if a poor white man is seen, um, then, then he's given the benefit of the doubt. And that uh, this is generally speaking, you know, but he, he lost his job or he came upon hard times or, uh, you know, maybe uh, his his wife kicked him out for a stupid reason or, you know, who knows what. But if it's a if it's a black guy, well, then it's probably drugs, probably doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. There's always the assumption that uh, that his father wasn't in the home, that he's a father who's not there for his children. Right. I, it's just, you know, th- that's not typically thought of regarding the white guy.
0: Right. What was the average congregant? What has been their response to, to everything that's been happening in their community?
2: I would say, and, and this isn't just congregants here. I mean, this is just Ferguson as a whole, especially the white community in Ferguson as a whole. I would say fear, fear for their community. When this happened on a mo- just most practical level, you know, the, a lot of people, their, their housing value went down. They want to move. They want to get out. And that's not been anyone in our congregation. But, uh, but it, you know, whenever we were looking for homes, it's, it's what we were encountering. People were wanting to get out. Um, they were wanting to get out quick, but their house wouldn't sell for what they needed it to sell. And, you know, it's the biggest uh, material investment that they've made, and they can't take that big of a hit with it. So they feel stuck. DOJ is, fortunately, they are working with, with the city here, but there's still a little bit of a fear that the city might end up dissolving or that the city might end up being absorbed by the county. And that uh, the county might. Start, oh, really? Yeah, that the county might start policing here. Um, that's a little bit less of a fear now. But whenever the DOJ uh, gave us a, uh, the consent to decree, it was uh, it was a big fear. And uh, and if that does happen, then uh, then policing will not be as strict. What St. Louis County typically does is they put their less trained cops or uh, they put cops that are in trouble in neighborhoods that are struggling um, that they've absorbed. That's a fear if Ferguson is absorbed by the county, then they won't they, they won't be as well policed. It's just it's just fear. And and fortunately, like I said, a lot of that fear has gone away. And our congregation I'm trying to I'm trying to keep people aware that there is still an issue. You know, a lot of people in the congregation we went out for the second anniversary and we did some direct ministry. Um and that was really good mm-hmm. and that was really eye opening I think for, for uh for quite a few people.
0: And what did that look like?
2: We went out and it sounds kind of uh, I guess you could say eccentric, but it worked. There's a guy here, his name's Jonathan Thomas. He doesn't actually minister in Ferguson, but he moved in from out of state whenever Mike Brown was killed. And he's a he's a black guy with a with a white wife. He moved here because of the issues that were going on here because of the racial tension and started ministering. And he was here uh whenever it was not the place to be. He was here ministering and he's got some he's got some pretty crazy stories. But he kind of headed up uh, you know, what we were doing that week of the second anniversary. And what we did is we, we got together, his church, our church, another church in the area, the three the three congregations. We got together and we lined up on either side of Canfield, just shoulder to shoulder. We actually wrote a prayer, a one-word prayer. We were going to be praying, and in one word that would best summarize our prayer and where our heart was with, with what was going on, we wrote that word or that phrase even on a piece of tape, taped it over our mouths, and we just said there, st- stood there and prayed and, and read Scripture And just kind of did it silently for a while. And then then we took the tape off and we we shared in in corporate prayer. You know, everybody got together and we took turns. Whoever wanted to pray, prayed. One lady from the uh, Canfield departments actually ended up giving her life to the Lord that day just by what we were doing. And her witnessing it and her seeing it. It opened up a lot of conversations. And then after that prayer, you know, we, we, we did. We had conversations with people. And a lot of us continued to go out uh, other days of the week and uh, just kind of more informally engage in conversations with people. We would go to the police department or to Canfield or uh, wherever uh, a, a large gathering was, and we would just, just talk with people and, and, and share with them the gospel.
0: So, Crystal, when you're working in this community uh, with your husband and, and you're supporting him, does being Black help that or does it hurt that or has it made any difference at all?
1: So, I grew up here in St. Louis, primarily in Hazelwood. Um, and the school that I went to growing up, the majority of the school was white. I was the only um, African American uh, student in kindergarten. And then I think I was the only girl, um, one of two in first grade. And it kind of, you know, it picked up over the years um, as the community changed. But, majority of my friends were white growing up. So, Seeing how polarized things became after Michael Brown was killed and then being Black married to a white husband in the community of Ferguson, I think it helps me to minister because I'm able to better see the heart of the white community. I, I don't, I'm speaking as um, in generalizations, but it's easier. And, and then especially since this past election, it's easier for me to say you have different viewpoints. You come from a different background and you just don't know what you don't know. It's right. not that you... Are racist. Um, you don't have hate in your heart for me or for my for my culture, my my background. You you aren't aware of the issues or the history, many right. of the the facts, and that that doesn't make you hateful or, or unloving. Just unaware, ignorant, and and I think that right. is, it allows me to be much more sympathetic um, than I see a lot of people being towards the white community since Michael Brown, and like I said, this past election I think has just highlighted that issue all over again, and how polarized right. our nation has become. It's really helped to balance our marriage and our ministry, just coming from different backgrounds, being able to sympathize with the other side because of our culture and also our upbringing.
0: Are Black people suspicious of you? Are white people suspicious of you? Is that something that you that you ever think about? It might be a ridiculous question.
1: No, yeah. it's not. I experienced it a lot more in my youth than I have today, and I, that just might be because of the circles that I've been in for the past five, six years. I've been in Bible college and then in ministry. But no, I, I know it is a reality. Instead of being viewed as having more of a diverse perspective, oftentimes I think it can discredit me to some people, almost like a, mm-hmm. a, a sellout, you know, to have married um, someone from a different culture. Now being the wife of a pastor in the in the black church, a lot of the times they would want to refer to me as first lady and have a expectation of how I would dress on Sunday morning and how my children dress sunday morning oh, yeah and I respect that about the culture and but honestly the church I grew up in, my pastor's wife um it was a it's a all black church um a very uh, healthy and strong church in the Florissant area and my pastor's wife set a great example for me she 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 preferred not to be called first lady, you know she just wanted to be called by her first name and she was more casual. Um and the church was more casual. There were expectations of how one ought to dress. Just kind of, you know, come as you are. Let's let's just praise Jesus and and learn about the word. That's my influence from the black community there and and how. But anyway, so yeah, I think to some people it discredits me, but I I'm thankful for it. Because like I said, I think it, it really helps us to be able to minister to both the black and white community.
0: Is multicultural something that should even be a goal? I think
1: the church should try to reflect what heaven's going to look like. If you're an all-white church in a small town and there's no minorities around, I think you just minister to your community. But in our situation, that's not the case. And it's just evidence. We can reach out to the community more um, the way that our demographic, the demographic of the church doesn't match the demographic of the community. Something that we love about our church is that they are very missions-minded. Um, we One of our elders was um, a missionary for several decades in the Congo. And then uh, the mm-hmm. other elder has one. Well, and his the first elder that was a missionary for several decades in the Congo. They have children that are still doing missions in Mexico and in Africa. And, um, and the other elder, he has a son who is a missionary in Taiwan. And we mm-hmm. give a lot to missions in um, the foreign mission field their heart is, our heart is very there. Um, I think something that needs to take place is just kind of um, viewing Ferguson as our mission field, um, maybe even our primary uh, missions field, since this is where God has planted the church. And I think that will really help to kind of shift the gears and the thinking and really help us to reach out better in in this community.
0: The opposite end of that is thanks to things like gentrification and all of these things that are becoming very common themes in the United States as demographics shift. You find a lot of minority churches, uh, whether they're you know, Hispanic or Asian or black churches, suddenly surrounded by a white community. You know, white neighborhoods aren't the only neighborhoods in transition. Especially within the church, we, you know, we find ourselves having to answer these questions just across the board. How much does culture play when it, of like trying to, to minister the gospel? For you guys in Ferguson, how important has that issue been as far as when you're writing your sermons? Are you writing in a cultural context? What is the big motivating factor there?
2: Honestly, it's been, it's been a question, if, if I understand what you're asking, it's been a question that I've been asked one way or another, you know, of course, being in Ferguson— Multiple times,'t you know, we're very unique in that our congregation is very schooled in, in the Bible. They, they're, they're very theologically sound, I think more so than, mo- than most churches. I think that just the racial issues have just kind of taken them by surprise, and I mean they kind of took us by surprise, honestly, I think it took everybody a little bit by right. surprise. I'm not so much focusing my sermons on you know racial reconciliation or things like that. What, we're, what, what I do whenever I preach is I preach through books whole books of the Bible. I I like the idea of understanding the Bible um in its context and understanding books in their context and just really diving deep into into a book. And so I just I just preach the text. I firmly believe that that will be what changes that changes our hearts and not just those who are listening but my heart as well. Honest spirit-led preaching is, which is of course what I aim for every Sunday will connect with what we know with our heart and that will then tell our hands to right. move.
0: So it's not like you guys are you know, sitting as elders in, in, in the building, you know, at your elders meeting and thinking, oh, well, we need to be more intentionally black in our right. congregation. And so, you know, I need to use more, more black illustrations or I need to, yeah, whatever. I whatever don't, I don't means. really,
2: you know, right or wrong. I'm of course I'm convinced that I'm right, <laughs> but, uh, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. I I focus more on preaching the gospel and Christ crucified than I do anything else. Um, in fact, on holidays, I don't preach, you know, I don't preach anything different on holidays. It's, it's where are we at in Matthew? You know, and, 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 I, and I, that's just a conviction that I have. And I believe that, uh, that that God, through His Word and through the leading of His Spirit, will, will uh, make the change necessary better than I ever could. Um, so whenever I'm asked that question about, you know, what am I doing to try to appeal more to the community— um, my answer is that I'm, I'm preaching the gospel, praying that, uh, right. that the Lord place people in my life from the community that I, can, that I can minister to, that the Lord place people in the lives of my congregants that they can minister to. That's pretty much it. And, I, and I'm praying that, that the Spirit move through His Word to, to, to compel hearts, um, including my own, including my wife's, just all of ours, to, to break over what breaks the Lord's heart. And I think the Lord's heart is breaking over this. So that's, that's kind of my, I guess you could say, my strategy.
1: Sunday morning, we're supposed to be edifying the body. Yeah, and shepherding.
2: Yeah, uh, now we and, have we have wow. done things. We have done community events. There was a time we were working with another another pastor who's uh, who's planting a church. The goal was to host meals, and uh, for a while it did really well. Where we would talk about racial reconciliation, what it would look like moving forward for Ferguson specifically.
1: Watch and document. We would
2: watch documentaries right. um, that would kind of educate the white community on, on the history that, you know, because every time you, you mentioned it earlier, that every time a white person, not every white person, this is general, of course, it's kind of a joke. But every time a white person talks about slavery, they tack on another hundred years. So slavery was 300 years ago. Slavery was 400 years ago. And then they talk about it the yeah. next day and slavery was 500 years ago. You know, it's just it's just more and more distance uh, than, than what it actually is. And then you know that doesn't even touch on the Jim Crow laws, which this is all recent mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, very, even slavery in, in the in the history of our of our nation is very recent. It, it was it was designed to educate. Um, it was designed to open up that line of communication, and, and it worked. Uh, it worked pretty well for a while. Um, there was some. There was one one guy in particular that in our in our congregation. Uh, he's a really great guy, and he ministers a lot to the black community. Uh, but it even opened up his eyes on a whole nother level, um, and uh, he was really touched by it. Uh, I think it provided an opportunity for some of the black community because we had people coming that weren't that don't that didn't come to church here to kind of give them an outlet and and to seek understanding. Um, it, it it was it was pretty cool there for a while. But yeah, I, Sunday mornings it's about edifying the body. It's about ministering to those who are here, and and I believe that can best be done through through the preaching of the gospel. And then, uh, but yeah, we did have those meals, and, and they were working for a while.
0: Let's go back to the gospel uh, here for a second. On Sunday morning, you're, you're not you're not going out of your way to be something that you're not. You're not having like strategic planning meetings or, or whatever. You are just purely saying that when Sunday morning comes, the only thing that matters is Christ. Being able to welcome anyone who will come into your church to present the gospel, the gospel becomes this great unifier or great equalizer. Is yeah. that right? How well has that gone in your community? Have you seen effective change? or
2: I think it has. I, I mean, I, like I said, we've nobody in our congregation is, as I would say, I, I don't think anybody in our congregation is racist. I, I can say that pretty confidently because Crystal is treated very well. My, my children are treated very well. Nobody's looked at them cross. We've all felt very loved but i think it goes back to what crystal was saying earlier just about that level of ignorance there that little level of unawareness and i think that the gospel is making people more aware there's a lady at our congregation that very tender-hearted woman she loves on us uh, she loves on our kids it's just a very nice lady and she sh- she's sharing with me stories about doing things that are pretty risky you know she's talking about picking people up on on the on the side of the road and giving them rides and and ministering to them and she doesn't tell mm-hmm. me they're black um she did but i you know I'm quite confident that they are because I see I see the people that are walking on the side of the road that that need help with rides and And most of the time here in Ferguson that's that's a black individual. and so she's she's being compelled to do things like that. And I, I work with a, a young adult ministry here at the church. We have our own Bible studies and things like that, and their their hearts, I think, are being moved more in that direction and And you know we've had a couple guys that I've reached out to that have kind of become a part of our small group that are African-American fellows. And I think that it's starting to move their hearts in that direction as well. So I, it's kind of a, a slow process. But, uh, but again, I just think that the gospel is the most genuine and authentic way to, to change hearts, um, the only real way to change hearts. And that's what, that's what needs to happen is there needs to be a heart change all around. So just a, right. a, a compelling of the advancement of the gospel in our community.
1: And at the same time, I think there are some some ministers who believe that it totally stops there, that um, the church isn't called to do anything more than speak the gospel. And I think that, I think the gospel, um, when, like you were saying, when it goes from head to heart to hand, I think that hand element is remembering that we were placed here to glorify God and glorifying God is reflecting his character. And he's like, he's a God of justice and a God of reconciliation and a God of love and when you have so much of the nation saying we don't feel loved, and and you proclaim to be a Christ follower and, and you're striving to be Christ-like, you meet them where they are and you love them. Find a way to communicate love to them. And I think right now that is showing sympathy and reaching out and and saying your grievance is real
0: right. and
1: Christ is the answer. You know, and right. and, and um, there are some and I, we don't we also don't want to say that everyone who feels racial tension or everyone in the Black Lives Matter movement. That they don't have Christ, but I think it's that's that's edifying the body and saying, remember that Christ is our ultimate answer, and and ultimately we're not going to have justice on this side, and we're not going to have peace on this side, but right. we can look to heaven and look to Him, and we can exude that ourselves, and that's you know, and and find comfort in that.
2: Yeah, that that goes back to what you were saying earlier, uh, Rocky, about. About the, should the church be multi multi ethnic? It's so frustrating for me that it's not. There is a racial issue in our nation. The church should be uh, the the strongest voice in racial racial reconciliation. That should be what is driving racial reconciliation. What foothold do we have to do that? Whenever ten thirty on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours. In our nation, non Christians are looking to us, and they're th- you know, really, you you have something to say about racial reconciliation. You do, Mister and Missus Christian. You know, you you and your all white church, or you and your all black church, you have something to say to me about racial reconciliation. And it just it doesn't work unless we are multi ethnical. It doesn't work work unless we right. unless we do treat uh, each other as brothers and sisters, regardless of our race, and unless we are working together for the advancement of the kingdom. Because outsiders see us as separate, because that's exactly what we are to to a right. great degree.
0: I'm fascinated by like everything that you guys are saying. There's so much quality stuff in your words. And one of the things that popped in my mind, Crystal was, was talking, uh, I was thinking about the fact that a lot of times people feel like they have to understand an issue in order to, to, to speak into it or to, to minister into it right. And as a pastor, I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting in my church and I'm thinking, well, maybe you don't understand the race issue but can you see that there's an entire segment of our of our population who are brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting? Is it enough that real or unreal, our brothers and sisters here, our community here, is an obvious pain? Shouldn't we speak into that as the church?
1: After Flando Castillo was killed, a woman reached out to me over Facebook, and I, we weren't we weren't friends, we were Facebook friends, but I had I don't think I'd met her face to face before, but she just reached out um, asking how I was handling things, how were things impacting me? How could she be praying for me? It just really touched me because this was a white woman. I think she was the only person that up to that point had been um, intentional about reaching out and just saying, hey, it goes without saying that this is impacting you. You weren't related to him. You didn't know him personally, but you're probably mourning and you're probably feeling um, a level of fear and, and stress about this. The only other person I had spoken that intimately with was one of my good friends um, who is black, and she was saying that she didn't want to go to work that day because she knew that people were going to be talking about the breakup of Angelina Jolie and, and Brad Pitt. They weren't going to be showing her sympathy right. or asking how she was or, or just taking it seriously at all. Even though, and I asked her what prompted her to reach out to me because we weren't close friends or anything. And she said that a minister at her church um, was encouraging people, uh, white congregants to reach out to people that they knew through Facebook um, or in their in their workplace that were black and just to show love and compassion and sympathy and to also have to have ears to hear what how it's really impacting the black community because in her in her world in her circles she would she would never have interacted with that she wouldn't have had um, an inside view into the heart of the black culture um, in that time. So it really, it really touched me. And she brought me to tears, honestly. I was just very thankful for that. And I think that's what part of what it's going to take is for people to go out. I'm sure that was outside of her comfort zone, to step outside of their comfort zone, both white people and black people, and to open up lines of communication. It's very hard to sympathize or to understand a perspective that you don't have. You need somebody who has that different perspective right. to tell you this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. And I think that's just a really great sh- way to show love as well.
0: So as, as we're wrapping this up, what would your encouragement be to us as your brothers and sisters in Christ concerning this issue, even though... You're in an extreme situation. You're in a community that has been brought to the forefront because of this issue. And you've dealt with some difficult things. This is something that we're all going through.
2: If you don't think there's a problem, do some research until you realize that there is a problem. If you're white and you don't think there's a problem, it's probably because you're not talking to enough black people. Just ask. <laughs> ask uh, some people that you know that are black how, how the shootings of Philandro Castile, Alton Sterling, Mike Brown, how these affected them. Uh, Laquan in Chicago, how, you know, how, how did it? I think that if you don't think there's a problem and you start doing that, you'll be shocked. I would say start praying for God to break your heart over, over what breaks his and understand that his heart is breaking over this. I would encourage those of us who are white, like myself, to reach out to the black community, as, as that lady did to my wife. That was a really awesome thing for me to see. I saw the video of Philandro Castile in a Starbucks, and I started crying in Starbucks, uh, which was a little embarrassing. But, but I did, and I called Crystal, and I told her another black man was shot. Don't watch the video. And, uh, you know, it, it, she was rattled. And, I you know, I don't know what to do. And it was really nice that that lady did that. So I would encourage those of us who are, are white to do that. And even if you're not not white, but are another minority to do that as well, to just reach out to our black community in that way and just say, hey, you know, I understand that, that this is impacting you. I'm sorry. Let me know what I can do to help. But I hope that it at least helps that you know that I understand. And I would encourage, you know, those in the black community to, as Crystal said, but understanding that ignorance is not racism at heart. Someone can say something that is technically racist without being racist at heart, and they would love to be corrected on that. Just a lot of times it could be ignorance or, or being unaware of a situation and understanding that that's not something that necessarily uh, jumped down someone's throat for, but to, to respond in a way that is also compassionate and loving. Um, and, and I would encourage, you know, this is something that, that, that I um, am, am working on doing. We're like we've already discussed, we're a predominantly white, uh, white church. My wife comes from a church who's just 15 minutes away, and they're a predominantly black church in a white community. And uh, they're struggling with the reverse of what we are. I, I actually uh, had a meeting and uh, her pastor was in the meeting uh, this morning. I'm going to start building a relationship with him, uh, with other black churches Uh, With churches that are multi-ethical, that are doing it better than than we are, build relationships with them. You know, It could be as simple as inviting them to our events and having them invite us to their events where where those on the outside of the walls of Christendom can see us being the body of Christ and us uh, pursuing racial reconciliation and being together and fellowshipping with one another and loving on each other and holding each other accountable.
1: I I, I believe that when it comes to uh, those within the church, whether we're black or white, I believe we just need to really listen with love and listen with while giving unconditional positive regard to the other person, not not looking to accuse them of anything, but just really trying to hear the heart and their experience when we're speaking to those inside the church. That's, I think what we need to do. And I think when we're speak- speaking with those outside the church, we need to just really be hearing that gospel message because it has what they're looking for. It has peace and justice. Um, and the only peace and justice we'll ever truly have. But also, as we've said, we have two, two young sons. Now, one of them will likely be seen as black, though he's an, uh, biracial. And the other one will likely be seen as white because he's so light skinned And though he's biracial, we have skin in the game. And, and we, we, We know that the gospel message is ultimately the answer, but the church can still make a difference and and work with our hands to bring about uh, change when it comes to um, political change as well um, and, and change in the nation. I think throughout church history, that's been the case that Christians have been have felt called to make a difference when it, when they see injustice, be it through feeding the poor, some kind of a t- tyranny in the world. The church has risen up and said, this isn't of God. And Christ wants us to reflect Him and, and bring about change. We just feel like we should be preaching the gospel and reaching out, making a difference where we can make a difference um, in our different walks of life. Mm-hmm. We're called to ministry, so we're trying to preach the gospel best the best
0: that we can. Right. Thank you for being on Productive Ministry today. Thank you for the faithfulness that you approach your ministry with. I'm just so blessed to have gotten to have the chance to talk with you. I'll definitely be praying not only for your community but, you know, for the church about all of these issues too. I hope our listeners will will definitely lift you guys up in prayer.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, we love sharing our hearts, of course. So, may God be glorified through this.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Productive Ministry. The great news is that the church can make a difference. We can affect change. We would love to continue this discussion at our website, ProductiveMinistry.org or Facebook.com slash ProductiveMinistry or Twitter at ProdMinistry. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. It really helps us out. Productive Ministry is a division of Rumble Media, LLC. Our producer is Timothy Jeekins. And as always, we hope you have a productive week.